Today we are talking with Erica Ridley. She is the author of Nobody's Princess, uh, which is coming out on July 26th. And we got to chat with her all about historical romance, Shawnee's Catnip, and... I don't know if I should spoil it for the people. I'm not going to spoil it. You know what? I'm going to leave a little tease right here that her and Shawnee had a bonding moment over where Shawnee is about to leave for vacation. It was very exciting. Very exciting. It also makes me like super hopeful because she is like working from uh, somewhere else. Somewhere else. For the last like 10 years. Uh Somewhere else. You know, they'll hear about it in the podcast. Mm -hmm. But like for 10 years and has made it work and is able to still connect with everybody. She's essentially doing what everybody had to do during the pandemic, but she was doing it 10 years earlier than everybody else. Um, And I, uh, and I like that a lot because it just makes me feel a little bit more free to move around the country and also be able to do the, the things that I would like to get done mm-hmm. and also stay connected with the people I want to stay connected with. Yeah. Um, so that was really, really delightful. And she was such great energy. I love when we talk to authors and there's just such delightful energy because yeah. the rest of my day is going to be amazing. I agree. I agree. She was great. The interview was great. We talked all about like writing and characters about how diversity, like the, ability to write diversity in traditional publishing has changed since she started pitching books in 2008. We talked about writing from another country and kind of like the great things and the things that are a little tricky. Um, it was great. I really, really enjoyed you, Erica. Hello, Erica, if you're listening. Uh, also, I want to say thank you to Forever Publications for sending us copies of the book to read in advance and also for hooking us up with Erica. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I think we should get into this interview because I think the people need to know all about Erica. Yes. And our special secret getaway. Let's get it popping. Romance at a glance. Uh-huh. Romance at a glance. What you say now? Romance. Go ahead, girl. Well, hello, Erica. Thanks for joining us. You guys, she's joining us all the way from Costa Rica today. So thank you for coming on the podcast. Yay. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. I am excited because, fun fact, Shawnee is leaving for Costa Rica on Monday. You are? (laughs) That's amazing. I am. I am. I was like, do you want me to bring you a monitor? When you were like, I have to find a monitor. I was like, I got a suitcase. You want me to do Do not tempt me. (laughs) Where are you going? Do you know? Uh, So it's uh, my family's from Costa Rica. So my my grandmother is having her like 90th birthday party. So my entire family is converging on Costa Rica right now. Um, And so I'm going to be in San Jose for the first week. And then I'm going to Cahuita. And then we may end up going like um, over to like the Manuel Antonio side just for like sure. a couple of days, but we're going to kind of like play that by ear. But I just wanted to go to uh, Cahuita because one, I want to go through Limon because the food, just the yes, food. Absolutely. <laughs> just the food. <laughs> and like, also I want to show like, so my family, um, which is really cool. is like, uh, there was like a few years ago that I was really thinking about like legacy. Like what is my legacy? What's the legacy I want to leave? And what legacy is my family left? And nobody told me when I was young that like, our family had such great legacy in Costa Rica. Like my aunt was a councilwoman and then my grandfather was like a famous principal to the point where he has like a statue and stuff like about him and whatnot. And so the last time I went, I got to go like on a tour and see everything and like what that legacy looked like. And so now I get to go and like, I get to show my partner 
Uh, and then we're just going to go relax in Cahuita for like a week and not think about anything but monkeys. <laughs> and the that beach. sounds amazing. <laughs> oh, I love it. So I was so excited when I, when I saw that you lived in Costa Rica. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm headed your way. <laughs> That's awesome. Except, unfortunately, I am on the other side of the country. I'm in Nuevo Arenal, so Uh, I'm up by the lake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's beautiful. It's beautiful there. Beautiful. I mean, I guess it's beautiful everywhere. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's basically beautiful. You can't go wrong. It's hard. You throw a rock, and you're like, oh man, look at this rainforest. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And you've been living there for ten years now. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly ten years this year. Nice. That's awesome. What would you say is like, as for a two-part question, your fa- I love a two-part question. Your favorite part of living there as just like in general, but also your favorite part as a writer and like in your ability to publish, you know, books and write. So my favorite part of living here is in general is going to be the culture of Pura Vida, which is basically everyone is chill and trying their best to make everyone else have an awesome day. And everybody's just so friendly and in a happy mood. And I, and it's, it's just really incredible to have just essentially a whole country that way. Um, the big city like San Jose can be a little bit more like your average big city, but I live out in the rainforest and here it's just amazing. The people I met literally on my first day here when I came to visit 20 years ago are still my friends to this day because everyone is just wonderful. Um, and as a writer, what I love, I love nature just in general, but as a writer, it's awesome because I can sit with my computer next to the window. There's toucans and butterflies and monkeys. I'm on a macadamia farm. So, you know, we have all the animals all the time and it's just green and flowers constantly because it's such a temperate environment that there's not really seasons in the way that other countries have them. There's always something in bloom. There's always animals nearby and it's just so relaxing and beautiful and gorgeous. When when, uh, was the catalyst that made you move there? Uh, So a good friend of mine, her father built one of the two major macadamia farms here in Costa Rica. And when he passed, he left his his home to her and she wanted to turn it kind of into a and b And this was pre-Airbnb days. And at the time, I wasn't a writer. I was doing websites. And so I came down to take pictures and to make like the website for her. Totally fell in love. Like I was here for an hour when I said to myself, I'm going to live here one day. (laughs) (laughs) And I pulled it up. <laughs> so nice. as I when I went to Costa Rica last year, um when I so like I have an autoimmune disorder. When I went to Costa Rica, I didn't have an autoimmune disorder. Like and I, I say that cheeky, but like every symptom that I have being in the US disappeared when I was in Costa Rica because the air quality is so much better. The food, there's no fungicides on your food, all that stuff. Like I was, I walked five miles the last day and I can't even walk five steps without sounding like I'm going to like lose my breath. So when I came home, I was on a campaign to convince my partner to move to Costa Rica. I was like, I had spreadsheets. I had slides. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she called me and she was like, she was like, Bridget, you can also come for three months a year as well. She's like, we could live like kings in Costa Rica. And I was like, I was like, yo, can my kids come? Or is this just like a me only? As I was like, they kind of got to come with me places. Listen, I'm still on this campaign. I, I looked up real estate. I was like, how do, you, how do you buy real estate? Like, how do I become a citizen? Because I missed that window where, like, if you're a child, you can, like, 
um, you can, you know, become dual citizen, but it's only up to like when you're 25. And my dad didn't tell me till I was like 27. Oh, that's um, nice. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I was like, this is happening at some point in my life. This is happening. <laughs> so that's awesome. That's really, that's like a, that's a cool story. Is that what, have yeah. you written that story? Like, have you written that as a story? Like, oh, I just, you know, this character. Just I feel like the story to, to, of your friend's dad having a macadamia farm, but then he left her and she had to move on. I'm like, I've read a romance novel like that. <laughs> Sounds like a rom-com story, right? Yeah, right. 100%. But I mean, who is he? Is he the, is he the, uh, the worker on the macadamia yeah. farm? Is he the Is he, is he, the, is is he the, the foreman? Does he own the I mean, local hotel? Like, <laughs> right. is he? Does he do waterfall <laughs> tours? What? I always want to know. <laughs> <laughs> water filters he would definitely show her the sights you know all the best Damn. parts of costa rica obviously i'm just saying put a vida uh, in the rain baby <laughs> <laughs> exactly so um, you write historical romance which is shawnee's catnip what is it about historicals that like kind of was that your genre that you read prior to writing yeah, so as an adult, my first adult romance novel was uh, Once a Princess by Joanna Lindsay. And that sent me down just a rabbit hole, binging her whole backlist and then all the other J names of the era, Jude Devereaux and Julie Garwood and, you know, Judith McNaught and, and all those guys. And, oh. Right? Yes, <laughs> yes. And I loved it so much. And um, and actually, when I first started writing, the book that I got my agent with was a contemporary actually set here in Costa Rica, and I don't know where I live. Um, but that book wasn't the one that sold. It wasn't until I switched to historical, my first love, that I, we actually sold. Um, and I think with historical, it's even though, you know, you, you do tons of research and it's theoretically based in fact, it's kind of like movies that are like inspired by a true story. Do you know what I mean? There's mm -hmm. there's the fantasy of what this historical environment really was like. And that's kind of what I feel like the escape that you can provide readers really is going into this other world with their other cultures and everything sounding, smelling and tasting different and what the different rules were and how you can fight against them, all that kind of good stuff. Yeah, I never, before we started the podcast, I, I, I literally think I had read like one historical of my whole life. I was like, grew up very much on like paranormal suspense romance and just general fantasy YA, um, you know, science fiction, etc. cetera. Um, and so we did a season of 10 historicals and shot. He's like, I'm going to pick you all the best ones <laughs> for this introduction. Front load, just after, front load all the good. <laughs> yeah, just front load all the best ones, don't you? And while we were reading them, that was my thing. I was like, oh, this is the same for me as reading Paranormal. Because I just get to completely separate myself. I don't know shit about the ton. So, like, you tell me there's high goss, and I'm like, ooh, let's get into it. Oh, they're not allowed to do this. I'm like, ooh, but he pulled her in an alcohol. I was like, ooh, it's going to go down because, you know, that's not a lot. So, like, for me, I, that is 100% what I discovered was that escapism is so fun and you know what i've read a couple of reviews not of your books but of other people's books and and they're like oh that's not historically accurate and i'm like go read nonfiction. what are you here for this is a romance this is a romance <laughs> what you, did they say they were going to be historically accurate like take the joy out of life why don't you i i think i like so much about historicals that <clears throat> so i like rituals just in in general you know like if i go to another country like if I go to another country and hijab is the thing to wear when you're in that country, 
I will wear it no problem because like that is the culture and that's the ritual of that. And I love like following rituals that people have set, you know? Um, and for historicals, I feel like everything about historical is ritual. Everything is about uh, uh, this pomp and circumstance that everybody has agreed to follow these rituals. Um, and sometimes they're absurd or whatnot, but it like, it allows for you to kind of release and go just drop into those rituals and be okay with that. Um, and I like that a lot, especially because like, if you're talking about contemporary, right? If, if your hero does something in a contemporary novel, that's just not okay. You feel that it's not okay, but there's so much that happens in historicals. It's also not okay, but because of the time you're allowed to like that thing, that's not okay. Like, (laughs) and so I enjoy the freedom, you know, the freedom of that, uh, as well. And, and when you're talking about like all the historicals that you uh that got you into what you're reading I, I remember like the first romance novel that I actually ever read was a Danielle Steele because it was in my middle school library and it probably should not have been in my middle school <laughs> library <laughs> but the next thing I got my hands on was a uh, historical and it was and I think like to Whitney my love was like one of the top three novels that I read like the first three <laughs> And at that point, Judith Knott was my queen and I was reading everything uh, under the sun in that in that regard. And so the the interesting thing about that is, it's like, I think, you know, to Whitney, my love is now seen as a very a highly, highly problematic book. Right. <laughs> um, but, I loved it all at the time, though, right? Like, at, I could not get enough. At the time, I was I was like 13 at the time. I didn't know no better. Anyway, like it was just like, what? Um, and so I, I'm, I'm actually really curious, like one, like, like when you really started reading romance, like, like for real. And then also, did your parent, were your parents okay with it? Like, were your parents, did they know what you were reading? Did they care at all? Because mine definitely did. Well, actually, when I was a kid, I wasn't reading romance. My dad loved horror, and so I would always read his horror books. So basically, they let me read whatever I wanted. It's just that there wasn't a lot of romance in the house, which I think is why it wasn't until I was 18 when I finally got my hands on, like, a real, you know, a real adult Judith McNaught-style romance book. Although, that said, I I did read some V.C. Andrews books, which are perhaps more problematic. I don't know if you've read those. It would be like Judith McNaught, but with incest and, you know, like, <laughs> and uh, as a kid, and I remember, you know, going to the drugstore and just looking at the covers and reading all that kind of stuff. My mom was a teacher and my grandma was a librarian. So basically, as long as I was reading, there was no questions asked. I was yeah. just allowed to grab whatever I wanted off of any shelf at any time. And for better or for worse. Um, did, like, did you ask your parents questions about what you're reading? Do you ever go to them and be like, hey? <laughs> well, I think they had questions because when I was about nine, I decided I was going to be the next Stephen King and I would write these horror stories. And I'm sure they were like, uh, do we give her a gold star or therapy? <laughs> so, I, I definitely felt that when I started reading Anne Rice and I was like, probably 12 yes and rice love and i was it. like should was this you know what i'm like i'm not gonna tell nobody i'm gonna just keep reading <laughs> and then you know see how it all goes see how it all goes thankfully i did not read the Anne rice uh, what's that one with the fairy tale the yeah, retelling sleeping of beauty. yeah sleeping, sleeping beauty, beauty. 
Oh no, I, I read that book is so dark. Shawnee was like, Bridget, you should read this. Maybe you should do this part. And I was like, yo, Shawnee, I was like, this book is this book is fucked up. Like even for me, I, I'm like, this book is I'm not saying it wasn't arousing because there were definitely parts where I was like, okay, that's hot, but it was it was definitely on the the rape side of non-con. It was, the, like, it's, it's it was dark, not on the on non-con side. It was just on the straight up. It was dark torture. romance before I knew what dark romance even was. But like, right. I mean, honestly, I feel like when people on TikTok are like, oh my God, that book's so spicy. I really want to be like, let me tell you a story about how y'all aren't ready for the real, <laughs> the real dark, okay? You guys are out here with nightlights on. If you want to go crazy, get it. Do you, do you ever look back at some of the first books you ever read that you thought were like, like, oh my gosh, the, the best book you ever read, the spiciest book you ever read, the whatever. And so you have like this idea of it in your mind. And then years later, you go back and read it and you're like, yeah. <laughs> I was recently, I was like, well, when the pandemic hit, I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go read all my comfort reads. Like I, I used to love these books. I read them five times each until the spines fell apart, but not in like 10 years. Right. So I'm like, I'm going to go back and read them all. And some of them did not match my memory of what this book was at all. hundred <laughs> percent. That's really like, fun. Yeah. Like perfect. how you read things in different stages of your life. Like, how do you feel like as an author? Because like you've written, I, I don't know, I counted off your website, but I don't know if this is an accurate count. 44 books. Does that feel accurate? Yeah, it's probably closer to 50 now, but that's probably how many have been Ooh. published. The rest are in the pipeline. Okay. Okay. So 50 books. Well, let's say, we'll say 44 published books. I mean, that's a lot of, that's a, first of all, that's just a lot of books. Because you've only been published since 2009? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, so like that's a lot of books in 13 years yeah it's a lot of books first of all congratulations secondly like as life changes like i'm sure you're you know you know you've written 50 books now it's like things are different than when you wrote book one but how do you feel like that when you look back at your older work or do you ever look back at your older work and like remember things like maybe even not as kindly like oh i messed some stuff up and you read it and you're like actually that's pretty good yeah well i'll be really honest i can't read anything that i've written without wanting to change all of it like they have to pry my book out of my cold dead hands to publish it because i will change every word on every page at the last second so i don't reread them because if i did i would probably i mean the world has changed so quickly recently I mean, I have no doubt that my early stuff has problematic elements that I di- that I didn't see at the time. Obviously, or I wouldn't have written it that way. And uh, and maybe it's not. Maybe you're right. Maybe it's not as bad as I think it would be in my head. Um, but I'm too scared. <laughs> I don't want to go look. I uh, I hundred percent feel that because while I don't write books, I do shoot music videos and I edit them. And if when I go back and look at my older edits, you know, because you get progressively better and better and better at editing as you go. And you're looking at the techniques you used in those first ones and you desperately want to rip them off the Internet and be like, you know, and I don't because I like to see the progression and I like other people to see the progression of where I was to where I'm, I'm going. And uh, but good God, <laughs> like sometimes I just want to rip them down 
immediately to a full new edit. Exactly. Yeah, for real. So how has the process been working with your publisher from abroad? Like, do you, do you still get to work with like the same editor over and over? Do you have, like, yeah. have you changed or has that worked? So actually now it's totally fine. So I started out traditionally published and then I went indie and then now I'm mm -hmm. hybrid. I do both. When I started out, those were the days where you had to actually physically mail your edits were handwritten on the printed out copy. And oh, wow. Yeah. Only like 10 years ago, but it was the dark ages of editing. And um, by the way, the internet existed. So I'm not sure why we did it that way, but <laughs> then, then it was really hard. And I remember paying $60 one time to mail edits back. And I was so angry. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, this could have been an email. But <laughs> But now, now it's fine. Now they just shoot off an, an email attachment and you do everything right there and track changes or whatever. And so, yeah, I've had the same editor for, for the Wild Winchester series. I've had the same editor, Leah Holtenschmidt, for the whole time. And so she's been great to work with. And, you know, we can hop on the phone if need be or do a Zoom or whatever. And uh, so it's technology makes it all so great now. Sounds so much so much better. Do you do you have a community of like writers uh, down there that you like work with or like commune with at all? Yeah, so I do have writer friends down here. It works totally differently than the publishing industry in the U.S. So, um, like, I I went a few years ago. We had a writing conference here in my province, and I went, and that was a very eye opening experience because the workshops and the people is just completely. First of all. It was all expenses paid. Hi, that does not happen in the United States. But the government values literature to the, such a point that they mm -hmm. just pay the writers to go and they put you up in a hotel and like your food is comped and the conference itself is comped and it was the most amazing experience. Now I'm spoiled. <laughs> that sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, I'm like I want to have a paid conference. That sounds nice. Right? It was it was amazing. Um, so yeah, so I do have writer friends down here, but the Costa Rica market, most of them. Uh, most of them are not even published in ebooks. They're just print published in Costa Rica. So um, we can't really talk shop in the same kind of way that I can with friends who, who write for the English first market, what, whatever country that they happen to be in. It is, it is very different, but that's what group chats are for. Right. And I, I do get to hang out with my friends and do co-working, you know, on zoom or whatever yeah. in other ways. I love a good co-working Zoom session. Sometimes me and Johnny won't speak for like five hours in a row. It's just, but we'll get so much more done because someone else is like there. So, yeah. you know, you can't, you're not going to like leave them there on their computer alone. So you end up just like sitting and just like cranking through. And then I'll be like, oh, by the way, I got to go. And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I feel like my, my body is hardwired to want to only work when I have a buddy. Like, it is so incredibly difficult when I'm just like by myself in a room. I'm, I, my, my brain finds any and everything to focus on other than what I needed, to, <laughs> what I needed to focus on. So like right. I, I recently, um, uh, I met this woman, she comes to do my hair and she has two daughters and I literally paid them. I was like, if you come, come to my house, I'll pay you just to sit like <laughs> just sit while I clean. I just need somebody here while I clean. And they were like, yeah okay cool <laughs> exactly like, this is the most productive i have been in so long <laughs> 
it is motivating. You just like you said, you've got that person that's right there, and you know they're working on stuff. So you're you kind of step up and do it too. So yeah, it's also like a shame for me. It's like a shame factor. Like <laughs> <laughs> like if I sit down, nobody like and take a break, nobody sees me. I'm more I'm more likely to do it. But if somebody's witnessing me take a break, my body's like, you cannot take this break. <laughs> <laughs> you must that's, your that's, your, that's your childhood trauma trying that's to get right, that, is the, that is all of the trauma that's all the trauma that's why I love Pomodoros right because the break is built in so you know you can just concentrate for your 25 minutes or whatever and you'll have 5 minutes at the end to kind of relax kind of wait what is yeah. it? is this a Oh yeah, it's um, pom- is this a Pomodoro. Show me this. Yeah, it's a method. Mm-hmm. I love it. It's called Pomodoro, which is Italian for tomato. I have no idea what that has to do with anything, <laughs> but now you know. And um, so basically, what it is, and there, there's all these apps you can get for your phone or your computer or whatever, and it's 25 minutes on, five minutes off. And so that when I'm co-working with my friends, we'll often just set a little timer. And so it's 25 minutes. Idea is you focus, you turn off all of the distractions, you're just all in on whatever it is you're supposed to be doing. And then at the end of your 25 minutes, it's free time. You, you, can, you, can, you can run to the restroom or you can chat. You can do whatever it is. And you don't have to feel bad about it, right? Because you put in your 25 minutes. And five minutes is enough time to, you know, grab some coffee or, or whatever it is that you need to do. And then it's back to the next Pomodoro. So it just goes on and on and on. But it's, it's great because it builds that break. Like that. So you, you never have to feel yeah. like, God, when will I be able to put this down? Because it's coming. It's right. coming yeah awesome. and you like probably helps your brain to like stand up and wiggle yeah. a little chat a little and then you're able to focus again i like this okay i'm gonna look into this i like a yeah. good uh, like a good method you know dear romance besties if you want to support the show head over to patreon.com forward slash romance at a glance to check out our awesome perks including stickers watching movies with us naughty book boxes and you can even be on the show can't be a patron? You can still support the show by purchasing books or things we recommend through our affiliate links on our show notes and our dope-ass website. Thanks for the commission. Or you can leave a review for the show on Apple Podcasts. Screenshot your review, send it to us on Instagram, and we'll send you some stickers. Um, so now that you write full-time, what is your schedule? Are you uh, like, I wake up and I'm cranking in the morning? Are you like, oh, okay, I like, she, like Shawnee, who's like only works at nighttime. If it's dark out, she's like, oh, now I can be, now I can write. What's the, what's your schedule like? So I'm definitely doing the morning thing. Um, I wake up more or less around dawn, which I never used to do in the States, but in, in Costa Rica, particularly where I live, it's bright from maybe like five in the morning to six thirty at night, and I want to be awake for all of it. So I, I have tricked myself into now adopting that circadian mm-hmm. rhythm. And uh, so yeah, so now I wake up in the morning. I take like an hour just to chill and and you know get something to eat and, and do whatever. I don't necessarily dive straight into work, but I try to divide my day into chunks. I'll have like a morning chunk where hopefully I'll knock out my words for the day. And I usually divide it not so much like in time. I don't sit down and say, I'm going to write for three hours or I'm going to write 2,000 words. It's usually in scenes or in chapters. Today, I'm going to write chapter five or however long that is, however long that takes, that's today's goal. And then I will try my best to knock that out in the morning. And then in the afternoon, if I feel like writing some more, it depends how brain dead I am, then I will do another session or then I'll switch to admin stuff because there is a ton of things that you have to do that is not writing a book. And I, 
and that has to get done, but I have learned if I do it first, then I have just disrupted my whole schedule for the day and then I never get the writing in. So I try to make that happen first. Have you ever thought about getting like a virtual assistant or something? I always wonder about that for like authors, especially because like writing takes so much brain power and then like the admin stuff that itself just takes forever. I mean, it's just like a lot of like a hundred thousand tiny tasks that all need to be done, but not necessarily like high value in, in the same way that a writing would be. Have you ever like tried to have a virtual assistant or have someone to help you throughout the years? Yeah, actually I've had an assistant about three times and the third one I loved, loved, loved. I would have married her. I mean, it would have been complicated with my husband, but it's, um, <laughs> but uh, she ended up getting a different job. And so she gave up being an assistant. And ever since then, I haven't gotten a new one because it is so hard for me to two things. Uh, it's hard for me to delegate. Like I always feel like even if it's some silly task that like you said, it's it's not going to give me any kind of return on investment. It's this low value thing, but I'm like, uh, if I think I can do it better or faster or whatever the thing is, it's, it's really hard for me to pass it off. Even though I know I should, it's better to have mm-hmm. it done than on my to-do mm-hmm. list forever. Um, and mm-hmm. then the other thing is just the training factor because Every assistant, even if they've been an assistant to another author, doesn't necessarily mean that they know how I want things done or what the vibe is on my, you know, newsletter or Facebook group or whatever, whatever the thing is. And I feel like if I have to look over their shoulder to see what they're posting and because it's all in my name, right? Like I am the one, as far as the reader knows, that's interacting, then then am I saving time? Um, so I'm not against it. If, if I were better at delegating, I would totally do it again in a heartbeat. Um, but I'm not better. <laughs> it's really hard. It's yeah. really hard to like wrap your mind around also the steps you take. I, I just got a virtual assistant to help us update. We have like 170 episodes or something like that. So help us like update all of our, our website, like all this back end stuff. And even just like wrapping my head around it, like, I have to make a video to show her exactly the steps I do as I go through each whatever. And I'm like, well, shit, this is like 30 steps of each, each like one thing that I'm like, Oh, update this page. But really updating the page is doing like, make this new thing, do this thing, go to this, thing, go to this page, go to this page. And I was like, Oh, no wonder my mind is so busy. <laughs> all this information and all these weird little things blacked away. Um, and it's definitely been tricky, like convincing myself, yes, I could do this in 15 minutes, 20 minutes, but I shouldn't. Right, <laughs> I shouldn't exactly. Tell her how to do it so that I never have to do it ever again. Very hard to convince myself. So I totally agree with you. <laughs> Yeah, I have a friend who's basically my hero. She has these Google Docs that she calls her processes. And every time she does anything, she'll write it down step by step. You click in the top left corner on this link. And, mm-hmm. and so anybody, like my mom, could follow it without knowing anything about what's going on. And it's so brilliant because, you know, she yeah. does it that way, you know, in, in case she got hit by a bus, like someone could take over. But I'm like, no, you could have an assistant tomorrow who could be yeah. you. Like, that's amazing. But she's been doing this for ever and so it's it's just yeah. daunting to have to start it now you know for sure i oh i 100 percent agree i was like shawnee sent me a link to like virtual assistant she's like you should do this and i was like all right fine i'm gonna look into it <laughs> you've convinced me i'm gonna look into it um 
when you're writing, what's your favorite part of the story to write? Are you like waiting for the first kiss? Are you right? You know, fan bantering the, the world building the plot. What's your favorite part? Oh man. Um, so I love, I love banter. I am always usually giggling to myself when I, when I get to those sequences. So I definitely love that. Um, and I also love anything that's, I love anything that's over the top. So I guess that would be my favorite, whether it's banter or not, or just, you know, it's, it's a heist or it's just some kind of ridiculous interaction. And if I can just kind of see it cinematically, you know, and it's just a lot of, I like having fun. And so those are my favorite sequences to write. Speaking of cinematic, I feel like I would read the Winchesters or watch, I guess I am reading them too, but watch them. Cause I feel like they're like, they're just kooky enough where you're like, I want to hang out with these weirdos. Like ooh, people all doing some weird stuff in there, but okay, we're going to heist this, kidnap a Duke. Let's kidnap a goddamn Duke. Let's do it. Right. Exactly. Honestly, uh, so like when I read historicals, a lot of times um, I'm reading the same story over and over again. Um, and so I, I love when an author brings in the absurd into it because I mean you kind of have to in that time period otherwise it can get really stale so I like that you like kind of push you know what like what you're gonna uh, what's gonna happen in the story because like I can read about a thousand million wallflowers you know um mm-hmm. but like what kind of what are they getting into what mischief is behind the scenes what you know that sort of thing and so um I think that's refreshing in general uh, every time when um uh, when Scarlett Peckham, we read her book like in season one, and she writes like a BDSM historicals. Honestly, first time I had read like BDSM in like historicals, and I was like, "Why is this the first time that this I'm actually reading this? Like, how many years am I reading this, and this has not really existed, or I have not found it to this point?" Um, and so I love the like that idea of just adding in just these new elements to something that could could be kind of boring if not you know yeah thanks those are my favorite parts to write too absolutely yeah just looking at it and being like okay how can i make this different how can i make this more fun how can i make this more absurd yes (laughs) how how would you feel like or how do you feel like your ability to sell books with a lot of diversity in them have changed throughout the years because like you're, you're obviously the later series, like the whole family is completely different and you have like the female, female, um, MCs and the, I think it was, it was it the last book or the two books ago. Uh, it was, yeah. The last book, Perks of Loving Will Allsar. Yeah. Um, how do you feel like, like, do you feel like that that's one. changed since you were originally pitching in like 2007, 2008 from pitching this later series now? Oh, absolutely. No, it was unheard of before. I I had all sorts of friends who were even established authors at the time who were told no when they wanted to write, you know, a protagonist who wasn't straight and white. And uh, which, unfortunately, right? Like, what? Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, it it definitely was not a landscape where, where that was a thing that was really going on. And then when I switched to indie publishing, it took me an embarrassing amount of time to realize like now I can do whatever I want because I kind of had that that programming or I kind of had already started down that 
traditional path of what was currently being published. Um, but then finally I was like, no, screw this. I'm going to write what I want to write. And so then I, I wrote more diverse characters and stuff like that. And so then when I got, uh, when I sold this series, um, that was mandatory for me right up front. I wasn't going to, to do it in, unless I could have just a diverse cast of characters from every aspect, whether it was race or sexuality or ableness or, or whatever the thing was. Like, I just really wanted the whole world, right? Like, why, mm -hmm. why just a small slice? Yeah. Also, just like when I, when I saw just the cover of the Perks of Loving a Wallflower, I was like, this is, this is like literally, uh, Every time I read a book where there's two friends who are wallflowers, right? I'm always like, they probably should end up together. Like, I, like they're always, you know, like even if you look at the Bridgertons, everybody is shipping like Penelope and Eloise, right? They're like, absolutely, you because you, they're they're the bestest friends. They know each other on the deepest of levels, and like you know, and they spend so much time bantering and making fun of everybody that they see, you know. So like to me, it's kind of funny because I'm like, this book is like a no-brainer but also like I haven't read it before you know what I mean like but it's like yeah of course of course this is like like awesome uh, and so I, th I thought that was dope when I as soon as I saw the cover I was like yes absolutely <laughs> excellent yeah I always I always feel like it's a little bittersweet for me in those books because Nowadays, you get married, you could still hang out, you can FaceTime your best friend, you might move to another house if you were roommates or another state or something, or even across the world, but you can be chatting constantly, you can still be very much in each other's lives. And I just feel a little sad in historicals when the two wallflowers, like one gets married and then leaves her, now her little wallflower friend is all by herself on the wall by herself, because the other friend married some duke or something, and they like live in their country house half the year, and they maybe exchange what, like three letters in six months, and I'm like, that poor girl's alone now. That's my yes, own. That's true. She's going to find her own personality. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's true. My, that's my true. favorite historical books, honestly, like if I were to like think of, I don't know if this is even a trope of any sort, but I love when there is like a wallflower who is like dressing in like dude's clothing and like running the streets at night and like, and, and gets in with like, Mer like merchant thieves somewhere and like those are my favorite like the ones where it's like they just keep going to the balls or whatever like i'm like okay you know it's whatever but the ones where they're like at, like adventuring throughout Secret the book life. those ones i'm just enraptured all in like and those are the ones i pick up to read again and again and again and i love when they're just feisty as hell but like feisty as hell throughout all the way to the end of the book because a lot of times i'll read these books and they're super feisty in the first third and then all of a sudden they become super docile and accepting and whatever in the end and i want them to fight tooth and nail and scratch and claw till the last page of that book in fact i want i want to believe that when the book ends there will be blood like i just <laughs> right i'm with you those are, those are like my favorite like types of historicals. And I think also like it's changed the older I've gotten. So when I was younger, you know, reading like Pride and Prejudice and, and those types of books, I liked more of the subtle pomp and circumstance. And the older I've gotten, the more I've been like, no, tell him now. Tell him. <laughs> Get in his face. Sneak out. Sneak out. <laughs> Don't show up to that wedding. Like <laughs> Right. 
absolutely so and i also think like we like i sometimes you know and this is horrible this is horrible on my part like as a kid because i started reading romance so young like there's part of my brain that believed that some of this was real life like reality right um and so like it makes you almost feel like the women of the past weren't feisty like ass kicking it (laughs) or whatever uh and so i think the older i've gotten the more i'm like wait a minute like you know they like this revisionist history you know even within like our own families right so like i grew up in a a super conservative family where you know as a girl you do certain things a certain way um but as i have started unpacking like all this generational bullshittery i'm realizing that my aunts were in the streets wilding like they (laughs) we found like they used to make us dress super conservative suit long hemlines you know whatever i found pictures of my parents back in the 60s and 70s with these mini skirts that where i i'm pretty sure that if they sneezed i would see their vulva like you know what i mean (laughs) platforms up to the wuha boy and they pretend like this never existed they pretend like they, they pretend like abortion never existed they pretend like all these things like that they never did and so like there's part of me that's like there's nothing new under the sun nothing nothing new <laughs> we think we're out here fighting the fighting the good fight it's like bro we didn't start this <laughs> exactly uh, so that's awesome so can you tell us a bit about what's coming down down your pipeline that's not published yet sure um so well, obviously, the next book that's going to come out is Nobody's Princess. So that's the one where Graham Winchester, he was an acrobat in a circus before becoming the leader of the vigilante family and developing his network of spies throughout London. And he's obsessed with royalty and dreams of one day rescuing a princess who will naturally fall in love with him. Naturally. Um, <laughs> unfortunately for him, Kunigunde de Hoy, she is a warrioress from Balkovia, not into the one night stand and uh, or him or British people at all. And uh, she's on a mission to prove herself and become the first female guardswoman in what is essentially a, a man's world. So accepting any kind of help from sexy meddling Graham is going to screw everything up for her and undermine her efforts. Um, but when the Winchester family gets one of their cases, uh, they invite her to come on board. And for the first time in her life, she's just accepted as is. She doesn't have to prove herself. She can fight right alongside them um for for justice for righting wrongs and of course along the way she's pretty sure she's not gonna fall in love so maybe a temporary fling is okay right Um, (laughs) and uh, i had so much fun writing this book and just heist that bang in general is a lot of fun it's a good time and the next book's coming up uh the book four is my rogue to ruin that's marjorie's story she infiltrates a gang of forgers to bring it down from the inside um, and then accidentally falls for one of the perpetrators. And then the fifth book, I just turned that one in. And then the fifth book I'm writing right now, it's Ooh. Elizabeth's story. And it's so funny. It reminds me of what, when you were talking earlier, it made me think of Elizabeth right away because she is the bloodthirsty Winchester, right? Like she is out <laughs> for blood constantly. She's, there's not a problem that she couldn't solve with her sword. She's like, oh, I got this. <laughs> and that's who she is, right? She can't. Yeah. That, that's who she is. Like, it's only a happy ever after if she gets to be herself in that yeah. kind of way through the whole thing. Yeah. So When uh, her and Cooney met and she, like, drew her sword and Cooney whipped the daggers out, she's like, I love her. Let's keep her. And I was like, 
<laughs> exactly. That's who she is. So yeah, so I'm having a blast. I just started writing it this past week and just having so much fun with her because of her her personality. So, so I'm curious, right? So like, um, because you're like, that's who she is and makes perfect sense to my brain. But because we, I, I feel like we've read so many books where fundamentally who the character is at the beginning of the book is not where they end up at the end. I always get so confused as to like, I'm like, when did the author lose like who that, who that character was? And so as you're writing, um, how do you like make sure that you're staying true to the fundamentals of who that person is? Like what, what would they do and what would they be thinking and how would they be processing? Yeah. So that's a really great question. And I think for me, there's, there's two different buckets. So like with Marjorie's story, you know, she is a forger. She is, she's not going to like not be a forger at the end of the book. Right. That's, that's part of her personality. Um, but there is a character arc that you want. It's, it's a boring story if nothing happens ever throughout the whole book, right? So she does have to learn and grow in other ways. And so I think it is important as an author to make that distinction between who is this, who is this person? Like, what is their essence, which is immutable and, they, and should be, you know, allowed to bloom, right? And what are the parts of them that they should question, that they should kind of interrogate a little bit and and grow from and become either more of or different or turn their back on or, or whatever whatever the thing is. Um, and so for me, it's it's oftentimes more of a journey of like where they are maybe emotionally. So like in the Duke heist, Chloe had to learn to kind of stand up for herself and not be afraid to stand out and, you know, like that kind of thing. But she was Chloe through the whole thing. And the same with Tommy. Tommy's a master of disguise and the person loving a wallflower. Like, that's not going to change. That's what she loves. It's her passion. Like, why, why should that change? But she had to learn to, to be strong and be like, no, even in the name of love, like, I want to be loved for who I am. And she had to kind of learn to, to do that. And so I kind of think of it in that way. Like, there's who they are as a person. And then there's who they can kind of mature into, which are two different things. I can, I know the exact book you're talking about, Johnny, because there was a book where we were like, oh, this book is awesome. And then they took a train ride and then we were like, wait, is this a totally different book? What, what happened on this train ride? Everyone's <laughs> <laughs> different. It was well, almost like they've written one, one half of the book and then taken like over it in a different book and then come back, but not reread the first half. Just like, oh yeah, I remember where we were. And then just like, <laughs> like the second half, completely. Completely, it, felt like, it honestly felt like a completely different set of characters. Um, well, there's a I danger know, there. Like we always say in the author world, like be careful that you're not having your characters do things for plot reasons instead of like what that character would do. And I think that is a dangerous trap that it's easy to fall into if you're not being very deliberate about it when, when you're writing. You're like, oh, it would be great if this happened instead of, no, that person would never. <laughs> yeah. There, yeah. That, there's so many moments yeah. where I'm like, they would never do that. Like that's, well, but, but what? Or like, you know, like, like, and I think like if the, if the character starts off as a very shy wall, like wallflower or whatever, and they like, and that way it's cool, but it's, for me, it's so difficult when they start off as like a kick-ass, badass, like I will fuck up your life character. And then at the end, they end up like a shy wallflower. And I'm always like, what just happened? Like, right. where, where did, where did we go wrong? <laughs> for why? For why? Like my dad says, for why? <laughs> um, when you were, when you were researching, uh, 
did you watch a lot of parkour videos? Because the whole time <laughs> that he's like escaping, he's escaping. Like, <laughs> all I can that is, that is who I is in my head, head, but I can't use that word in the book, right? Because it doesn't exist. Yeah, he's like an he's like a like a circus acrobat or something. So like right. that makes sense to me too because they're like wily and crafty, and but the whole time he was like. I'll meet you there. And he's like, well, it was fine. I scrambled up a wall. And she's like, what? Like, all I can think of is when you see people do parkour things and you're like, how did you get up there so quick? Like, I don't think my body does the same things your body does. Exactly. Exactly. That's it. That was absolutely what I had in mind. And so in all the scenes where he's, you know, doing doing that kind of thing, leaping from one thing to another in order to get up on the rooftops or whatever is absolutely, he's my, he's my parkour dude. <laughs> yeah. My my little brother does parkour aggressively, and uh, uh, Morgan did it, and mm-hmm. he he's super tall. He's six foot three, right? Uh, and he'll say to me like, so there was a certain point where he's like, I want to teach you, Shani. Like I really want to teach you. So I, <laughs> I would go out with him, and for parkour, you just go to a random place on the street, you know, which I don't think is good for black people. Parkour is dangerous for black people, and I just got to say that. Okay, because you climb that wall, you look like you're breaking into something, right? So like, I'm I'm always so desperately afraid for him whenever he's like, oh yeah, we're just gonna go out to like this mall, and I'm like, bro, I just need you to chill, you know. But he t- he was trying to teach me, and he's like, wait, I'm gonna teach you how to like do a cat grab. You know, all you do is you gotta run up the wall, and you gotta grab the wall with your fingers, and then, and then, and then you scurry up the wall, you know, like, and, and then he does it. Makes it look effortless, like makes it look super effortless. He's like, let's see, boom, I'm up. Right? <laughs> there's me, bottom heavy as shit. Like I got a booty for days. <laughs> trying to cat grab this wall and just like sinking slowly. <laughs> down the wall. Like if you don't have like the hand strength to hold on, it's like no amount of scramble is gonna get you no, anywhere. No. You're gonna just. Boom. I, I legitimately feel like I you ever see those cat videos where cats decide they're gonna jump on something but never make it. Like the, the commitment or whatever, the follow-through was never there and they're just like mid-air, just like hands out. That is legitimately <laughs> whenever he tries to teach me like a parkour move. I'm just like, I throw everything I have into it, but my body didn't agree. Like my mind and body have now agreed on what the destination is and what we should look like in the process. So it's just a it's just me desperately holding onto the wall scrambling my little feet up and then just sliding down (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome do you um do you feel like as you've done interviews like you know throughout the last 10 years is there a question or something that you wish people would ask you more about that you wish you could like talk more about um there's not a specific question no i'm open usually to just about anything i don't really have any subjects that are off the table any burning, no burning. Well, that's good. That means people are asking good questions. That's good. Yeah. Um, we had we had one person who was like, yes, I do have a specific question and I would like to talk more about this. <laughs> what was it? Um, she uh, wrote a book about Renaissance fairs and she's like, I want people to ask me more questions about Renaissance fairs because she um, uh, is Jen DeLuca. I don't know if you read oh, any sure. of her books. Um, and they, and she like, ha- 
also used to be at them and like work at them and dress up and do the cosplaying and everything. She's like, I want people to ask me more questions about Renaissance fairs and what it's like going to them and working at them. And I was like, well, tell us, wax away, friend. Let's talk about it. <laughs> We're here for you. You know, you know that, that's, that's awesome. actually, that actually leads to like a question that I am curious about. And I, I never asked, it's like, how much of you, Erica, is in your books? Like, in what aspect, like when you're writing, you could say like, oh, me, me as a person is like in this book in this way. Yeah. So I would definitely say that a part of me is always in whoever my main characters are, um, because I can usually find some point of reference where I feel like we view the world from the same standpoint or, or we have the same emotion about something. And it's usually important for me to kind of have that connection so that I can feel like I am more authentically representing how they would react in certain situations on the page. I don't mold my characters after real life people. And I've never just like straight said, oh, this character is exactly me, you know, anything like that. Um, but oftentimes when they're in a situation, I mean, let's be honest, I, I put them in situations I have never been in in my life. Um, but usually there's something about that situation, right? Like I haven't been in that exact one, but I do know what it's like to feel self-conscious or people are making fun of you or you're afraid this person that you like doesn't like you back or, or whatever the thing is. And then I can pull on that experience or that emotion to kind of inform the character when I'm writing those scenes. Like, I think this is like, sometimes the most important because on, on our podcast, we talk a lot about uh, relationships and like relationship dynamics and all that kind of stuff. And it, that happened really organically. We were talking about romance, but in the process of talking about books, we started talking about our own lives and, um, and what relationships look like for us. And we've since found that. Shani, love a tangent. I do. Love, we a do love a tangent. <laughs> and we've since found out that a lot of people listen to us who don't read the books at all. And listen to, they, they just want to hear like our take on like the relationship dynamics and whatever's going on. And also like our antics from our wilder days. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, but the thing that I, that we really like to know is like um, fundamentally what in real life, IRL, what makes a great relationship? What makes a great relationship work? What keeps it moving forward? What keeps it fresh? What, what is needed? So with, in general, um, okay, I guess I'll insert two ways. So like with me and my husband, for example, um, basically the, the whole trick boils down to, I make him my top priority and he makes me his top priority. And that way, like you, you can just never go wrong, you know, before I do something, I'm like, oh, would this be, you know, what's best for him or, or whatever? And I know he's always doing the exact same thing. And so there's basically, there's rarely any reason to to fight about anything because if both people are constantly trying to make it the best thing for the other person. And I, to be honest, feel the same way, like about friendships, like my best friends, you know, I will kill somebody for them. And I feel like, I, I would do whatever it was to to make their lives the best that I could make them as well. And I, I do feel like they feel the same way about me. If I needed them, I you know, I have I have someone I could call and be like, I need you on the next plane. And they would, right? Like I, I don't have any I've never played that card, but I but I know that if I had to for some reason, like they would be there for me and that they know that about me too. And I, I think that's I think that's what it what it is. It's being there one hundred percent for that other person. And the security of knowing that they are like, they don't have to actively be treating you, you know, 
like a princess in that specific moment or whatever. But if you know that whatever it is that you need, they'll be more than happy to have your back on and vice versa. I, I feel like that is the basic foundation. I love that. Um, well, this has been a delight. You guys, you can check out Nobody's Princess on I Wanna Say It. Didn't write the date down, guys. <laughs> July 26th. July 26th. I did write it down. I just was in the wrong spreadsheet. So, and I was like, I know it's not in June. Okay. I'll try again. No, I won't. We'll keep this in because everybody knows that I have trouble with things. So Nobody's Princess comes out on July 26th. You guys, I just finished it and it was a delight. Um, and I'll definitely be going back to reread all the other O Winchesters. Um, you can find Erica on the interwebs on Instagram. Where else can our fair friends find you? On all the social media, I'm there as Erica Ridley, and you can get a free ebook by signing up to my VIP list at ericaridley.com. Fun. Ooh, free books. Yay. All right, dear listeners, until next time, may your books be your lover. And your hand your best friend. (laughs) Bye for now, kids. We'll see you next time. Thanks for hanging in with us, romance readers. Head over to Instagram to continue chatting with us. We're super friendly. We want to cackle with you. We want to know what your favorite sex scene was. And we need more book recommendations. If you want to read along with us, go to our website, romanceataglance.com, to see what we're reading next. And we'll see you next podcast.